Provoke podcast is brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialists, Marketeers. Support for this podcast comes from Notified, the integrated, intelligent and easy-to-use PR software. Get a free demo today at Notified.com. Hello and welcome to the Provoke podcast. I'm Diana Marzalek, senior reporter with Provoke Media. And my guest today is Dan Simon. Dan is the founder and leader of Vested, a financial communications firm. Is that correct? That's absolutely right. (laughs) And a prolific writer. Um, Your latest book was called Money Hackers, and it looked at um, the world of fintech, which we will dive into. So thank you for coming. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Yes, The Money Hackers, How a Group of Misfits Took on Wall Street and Changed Finance Forever, published by HarperCollins last summer. Yes, I love the title. So I'm intrigued by the title, The Misfits. Tell me about The Misfits. Uh, well, firstly, let me just say about publishing a book, highly, re- highly recommend not publishing a book right into the heart of a pandemic. Uh, wouldn't <laughs> for anyone who's asking me about book publishing tips. My first my first thing is don't push it. Don't push a book out in the middle of a once in a hundred year pandemic. Uh, that'll really put a crimp in your uh, put a crimp in your speaking schedule. Look at um, the rebirth of the book. The relaunch. We're doing the relaunch today. Yes. Thank you. That's great. Uh, so the Misfits talks about, I mean, the book The book looks at the state of the financial industry after the financial crash of 2008. And if you take a book like The Big Short, which is a very popular book by Michael Lewis about how the financial crisis of 2008, 2009 came about, I basically tried to do a very similar thing um, to, to sort of talk about what's happened in finance in the last 10 years, particularly how technology has transformed finance over the last decade. And just like Lewis did, instead of trying to explain how mortgage securitization worked, he, he showed you a bunch of very interesting people who, who had the foresight to see what was going wrong with the, the mortgage market. Uh, I did the same thing. I focused on uh, each chapter focuses on individuals within the, uh, within the financial fintech world, people from Venmo or Lending Club or remittances programs like World Remit, um, uh, uh, who really have shaped, who use technology to completely transform the way that we uh, use finance. I lost my wallet last week, and I suspected it was somewhere in my house. And what I realized <laughs> for the last week, I've, and I found it, by the way, but what I've realized is Congratulations. I, don't use a, I don't use a wallet. I don't use credit cards. Everything is Apple Pay now, you know, and that's dramatically changed, even in this last year, especially advanced by the pandemic. And, and that world that we live in today, that touchless world, the Venmo world, you know, splitting, uh, you know, splitting a pay, uh, splitting a pizza over your phone, or even the Robin Hood world of trading, um, that world was not brought to you by your grandparents' uh, financial advisor. That world was brought to you by these misfits, by a group of weirdos and technologists and people from outside of the financial industry. And I'm, I think, as a misfit myself, I found them very interesting. So I did over 150 interviews. With wow. these with, with these people over the course of a year and, and put this book together, it was a really fascinating, it's a really fascinating experience and journey. Well, you, you may have answered my question, but I, I these are tech people or fine they, they revolutionized the finance world, but they're not necessarily like financiers, right? They're techies. That's correct. Yeah, techies or not even. I mean, so you know, there's a bank, there's a bank right now called Green Dot. The founder of the bank is a guy called Steve Street. He's a chapter in the book. Green Dot serves the underbanked. So there's about 12% of this population 
um, who are either completely underbanked, they, they literally operate in the cash economy, or that the, or they operate, um, uh, you know, or they operate uh, somewhat outside of the banking system. And Green Dot serves that bank. That's about 20 million Americans today. That more people have a bank, a phone than a bank account in the state. More people actually have a house than a bank account in the state. Um, uh, and, and so Green Dot serves people who work in the cash economy. The founder of that is a guy called Steve Street. His first claim to fame was he invented the category of music we call soft relk. He was an A&R guy and he came up with people with the radio station where he was working was like, well, it's not, it's not hard rock and it's not pop. What is it? And he's like, let's call it soft rock. And so his first, he made a lot of money being an A&R guy. And he, uh, uh, you know, his, his great vision, what he did, he took all the money he made from, from a Sony buyout and he, he had this idea, he was going to make credit cards for kids. Mm. Um, and it was a spectacular failure. He had all these credit cards made. He found a provider, went, put them in 7-Elevens, and he sort of waited for kids to show up and buy credit cards, use credit cards. Um, and, and, and eventually people started buying them, but he realized that they weren't kids. They weren't sort of affluent teenagers. They were 55-year-old African-American laborers or yeah. Hispanic immigrant laborers, people who were being paid in cash and working in the check cashing economy and that sort of thing. And so he pivoted the business. Now, that's something, by the way, you don't hear very often in banking. You don't hear about pivoting oh. in traditional finance. Um, uh, and so he ended up building the world's largest bank that serves the underbanked. Uh, so uh, he's helping bring millions of these Americans into the uh, into the traditional financial services industry. And he's doing it, you know, from a background of the music industry. So, you know, these are all people who, uh, some of them worked inside finance, but I, I, a lot of them, the ones that we profile who did work inside finance were women. Uh, and, and, and I think they were misfits by virtue of their gender, misfits mm -hmm. by virtue of their background, misfits because they didn't fit the mold of a traditional um, traditional banker. So, um, yeah, some of them were finance, some of them were techies, some of them were consultants, some of them were kids out of college, John Stein. Um, as the founders of Venmo were, were just were just kids out of college. Interesting. So where are we at in fintech? I mean, it's been growing, obviously. It's booming. I mean, how much can we, <laughs> how far can we go, right? I mean, where are we at? And, um, you know, the challenges that come to the companies and the communicators in, in working with these companies and garnering them attention and, and business. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's probably also just worth planting the seed here that I am not a finance guy. I just play one on TV. You know, I'm actually, a, I'm a comms guy, just, you know, like provokes audience. I'm a PR person. I just happen to focus my PR attention and storytelling on finance. So after 20 years of doing that, it kind of made sense to tell the story and actually go and work with a publisher and actually produce a book on it. Um, so we can get back a little bit to my kind of role as a comms person in a moment, but but in terms of where we stand, you know, if you think about eight years ago, let's say finance was so disconnected in our experience from the rest of our consumer experiences. You know, we were ordering our um, medications on our cell phones, and we had Netflix and Spotify, and, and our banking apps were terrible and. You know, you still had to operate with a check and you had to. Now, what, what the result of what I write about in the book is this very rapid up leveling of, of, of finance to be on the same level as our other consumer experiences. Mm -hmm. So there's no longer this kind of like record scratch where we transition from uh, a hospitality experience or an entertainment experience or a content experience to a finance experience. It kind of feels 
the same, right? And I'm not, I'm not just the fintech apps, the cool, hot fintech apps like Betterment and Robinhood and, you know, but like even my Bank of America app. I mean, if you just, if you, I'm, I'm a Bank of America customer, like that app is actually pretty good. Their AI assistant is actually pretty good. I mean, it's, it's not as beautiful an experience as Spotify, but like it's kind of comparable in terms of it learns about me and it's interested in me and it actually can answer my questions. So I think, you know, the, the, so the, uh, much of the heavy lifting has been done to bring finance up to the same level as other consumer experiences. I think where we are, there's a late stage problem that's happening, which is like Robin Hood. Right. So where like the people who figured out how to make these apps accessible and, um, uh, you know, UX and UI and made them a really pleasant, fun experience to use also took the pendulum a little too far and figured out how to hardwire our brains uh, the same way that a Facebook does or that a, a game like Fortnite does. And there's a big question, I think, about whether consumers, particularly financial consumers, should form addictive behaviors around things like trading. I think that's very risky. I think, you know, it's not, that's not what I consider to be the, the shouldn't be the end point of financial literacy. The other thing I think is that, as I touched on before, you know, we've just gone through a really, big crisis and our job numbers are improving and the economy is improving. The Dow's never been better, but it's a real K-shaped recovery. And there's half of this country, one in four kids in this country don't have enough food to eat, which is a horrible indictment. And, you know, there's some policy. We are creating an economy of gig workers, uh, delivery workers, you know, and it's like Scott Galloway says, you know, literally 50% of us are fortunate enough to sit here and I can order my burrito. And then there's, you know, while I work from home and I've got great, new, you know, great new flexibility and isn't it wonderful? And aren't we so grateful that we have all of this? And then there's 50% of these poor sods who are experiencing enormous income volatility, fractional work. And of course, policy can solve that redistributed policy tax policy. But I also believe that uh, I also believe that fintech can solve some of those problems, particularly in the areas of real-time payments and also credit. You know, 50% of Americans use credit very differently from someone like me. I use credit to buy big things that I don't want to bite off all in one go, right. like a widescreen TV or a honeymoon or a above-ground pool or something, or a car on or, or a house. <laughs> okay. I'm making some up, right? The rest of America, the rest of the world uses credit to smooth the peaks and the troughs of income volatility. And we have to find a way to extend credit to that that part of the world responsibly. So, so for the rich people, fintech I think has gone about as far as it needs to go. And for the poor, for the rest of the world, the other fifty percent, you know, I think fintech still has a really important role to play in improving people's lives. But how? Because you're talking about policy. Um, you're talking about people who are underbanking, so they don't have the traditional banking structure behind. Well, the great thing about more people owning a mobile phone than a mo more people owning a mobile phone than say a a bank, you know, there were banking deserts. There are banking deserts in this country where people have to travel for miles to get a bank. Well, the good news is you don't need to anymore if you can bank on your phone. Platforms like Green Dog can take your cash, transfer it as a Seven Eleven, get you a card that can be used as a cat as a as a as a debit card. Right. Um, 
And then while we're there and we're doing that, we're looking at your transactions, we can help you make smarter financial decisions. We can help negotiate your bills. Uh, we can help extend credit, you know, in fractional, small amounts, $100 here, $200 there. They picture the Uber driver, the, car, the tire blows out. Until the Uber driver gets the, the money to get the tire fixed, he can't get back on the road to start earning money again, right? So, you know, these are little fractional credit extensions of two, four, five hundred dollars, uh, but that could get paid back very, very quickly. And you know, imagine an app that can do all of that, you know, in one place. That's what we're working towards. That's where we're building towards. And for the right people, it could be a lucrative business. Right, because you're not going to a bank for a five hundred dollar loan. You have to try to scrape that up from whomever and who also might have income volatility right so it's absolutely yeah that we yes the the you know the family economy if you like absolutely right. the family and friends network economy which in itself is like a dark banking system um and we saw this by the way last year in the in the in the middle of the pandemic you know with this ppp loan distribution you know if you remember reading and now maybe this is a good pivot into the storytelling and and headlines and what the media wrote i mean I'm sure you read lots of stories last year about how, you know, your local diner, your local coffee shop had to close on your high street because uh, they couldn't get PPP loans. But meanwhile, Harvard University got a PPP loan. Ruth's Chris Steakhouse got a PPP loan. Right. And that's and that's not that's not just the, the, the easy answer as well. Of course, they're insiders. They know the bank manager. They can get it. It's not just that. The reality is the banks, traditional financial institutions prioritized companies that they already had existing lines of credit with to distribute this money to. Because those companies, they'd already done due diligence, they'd already done KYC, they'd already done anti-money laundering, they'd already made sure that the, the money was going to the right people, right? right? They did all that manually. It costs them just as much to distribute a million dollars as it costs them to distribute $10,000. So they prioritized distributing a million dollars, which is why Roots Chris Steakhouse gets money when it doesn't need it. Uh, whatever it was, Shake Shack gets money when it doesn't need it. And your friends, dry cleaners or coffee shop didn't get it because actually the traditional, you know, doesn't want those small dollars, doesn't know what to do with those small dollars. So the, in many ways, you know, the, 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 the kind of the Venmo economy, the cool kids spitting pizza, the, the sort of the rich white middle class of us, right. That fintechs kind of solved that problem. When you, when you look at like distributing, PPP money to small businesses. By the way, who were especially impacted? Women-owned businesses, businesses of, that had um, owners of color. Mm -hmm. Those people had the least amount of existing lines of credit with, uh, with existing traditional banks, so they got screwed. So in, in many ways, the technology has to massively catch up. And that's actually where some of these fintech companies like Cabbage, my friend Catherine Petralia, who runs Cabbage, they already had the technology to be able to say, doesn't matter if you need a dollar, we need a million dollars, our technology, we, are, we, we can automate all of this and get the money. So they had a much better track record of getting money where it needed to go. So the technology has the ability, I mean, we've talked about sort of the democratization of things like investing in Robinhood. Um, it also has some equalizing capabilities or can work toward the equalizing capabilities, as you were saying, income distribution. But what's different, and this is a question, you mentioned having the same consumer experience that we might have going ordering food or, or going to a hotel, hospitality, or what it is. But money is still different, right? We all want to have control of our money. We all understand it, but yet it's highly regulated. It's it's bigger than, I don't want to say it's bigger than us because it is us. And I mean, I am not as knowledgeable as I could be to, to 
I can Venmo with the best of them, right? <laughs> or uh, do a little Robin Hood here and there. But bankers know things I don't know, um, you know, big decisions or regulatory yeah. issues. I mean, there yes, could it's be not, it's not ordering, right. not ordering a pizza. It's not, it's not. And I think that's right. I think you're touching on this, you know, how exciting should finance be? Uh, you know, when you think about a Robin Hood, um, how much like a game experience should it be? I always think about this term about building addictive behavior. I think it's highly contextual. I think um, even within finance, there's different parts of finance where different rules apply. There's a great savings app I use called Digit. Digit looks at my spending patterns, automatically takes money away from me. I don't, it's like I keep the change. <laughs> Yeah, digit. So it's great. It doesn't have an app. It does everything over text, and it's a bot, and it talks. And it sort of talks to me. It goes, "Hey, morning. Your checking balance is this. Do you want to see what the last three transactions are?" And you text back and go, "Yeah, show me the last three transactions." It shows you to them, and it gives you gifts, and it's funny, and you can choose its personality, and it's quite an addictive little tool. And then every now and again, it goes, "Congratulations, we just saved you a thousand. We've, you've saved a thousand dollars." And you go, "Ooh!" And you get a little endorphin boost, and that builds an addictive thing. I don't think it's a problem to build addictive behavior around saving. I think that's very good. I think when it comes to trading options that you don't understand that are highly leveraged with your stimulus check, I think that's building addictive behavior is really, really bad. Right. So <laughs> I think the best kind of thing this, that those people could. I'm sorry. I know I was just thinking out loud, but it was, it's kind of this point between enabling people, empowering people, and preying on people. That's right. And I think that's precisely why I think. Personally, I think Robin Hood is so evil. Mm-hmm. Said the said the guy who's never ever going to get Robin Hood as a client now. That's um, all right. But now, I, now I, that you I, know I, it. Say so talk away. I mean, I've said it before. I've said it to other people because they're doubly bad. They both they both leverage people. They're in the men. It's what they're again. What Scott Galloway calls the menace economy, right? Their consumers are free. So in any ways, they're like a Facebook. They have the same sort of negative preying on that kind of negative you know, clicky, clicky, addictive kind of behavior. But worse than anything, they hide behind the moniker of democratizing finance and sort Mm -hmm. of accessibility. And it's like, you know, that's sort of doubly bad in a way. It's a bit like Facebook kind of undermining democracy while also talking about being the world's water cooler and bringing communities together and look at all the good stuff. You know, they sort of hid behind that PR for a long time. And I think there's been a huge backlash against that as we say, well, actually on balance, guys, you do much more much more harm than good Hmm. um despite your best intentions i think robin hood similarly sort of hide behind the idea of we're democratizing access and get back to the big get back at the big guys and you can be a master of your own whilst while also you know there was a there was a young man that killed himself um uh you know because he thought he owed all this you know money i mean you know i think I, I think that you, people have to be very, very careful. And, and that's, not my, that's not my vision of democratizing finance. You know, that's not what, it's not what Alexander Hamilton intended. No, because money is dangerous. I mean, it can be dangerous between greed and, like you say, addictive behavior and legalities. And it, it's bigger yeah, than... Yeah, and I, well, there's a difference between trading, which I think very few people should do. It's very akin to betting and, and investing, which everyone should do. And I think, you know, Robin Hood kind of, is a trading app masquerading as an investing app. You know, uh, there are investing fintech apps, things like Betterment and Wealthfront, which are very sort of boring. I mean, you know, in a good way, kind of boring. Take the extra money you've got. You've got that money. You put it in. Mm-hmm. Um, but we are also in the grip of 
what they're calling the mean economy, the sort of the get rich kid. Lots of young people, they're seeing their friends, they, they bet on things like Bitcoin, NFTs, suddenly they're millionaires. It's a kind of a, a YOLO financial economy. And I think that's a, that's a cultural thing as well as the fintech thing. And I think the marriage of those comes together in a product like Robin Hood. And I think it's potentially quite dangerous. I'm not even going to talk about, ask about uh, Bitcoin. <laughs> so, Please don't ask me about Bitcoin. So above and beyond um, comprehension for some of us. Um, if you want to read about Bitcoin, I write about it in the book. That's what right? I would say. There's a couple of good yeah, chapters in there. I know what I'm reading. I should have read it beforehand, except my apologies, but this came up. No, of course. No, of course not. <laughs> I'm just saying. I think, you know, I'm, it, it, my position on Bitcoin is much better read about than listen to because okay. I just I'm not very good no well you are you are very good and you are very dynamic which brings us to um clearly financial communications does not have to be dry and boring because <laughs> you are not dry no. and boring. <laughs> I'm having a great conversation and I know financial well, so um it's still about the storytelling huh when you get into financial communications it's Absolutely. Well, you know, I think I think that I think that's exactly what drew me to it. I mean that's what you know I I that's what drew me to finance and what drew me to financial storytelling i think that it can be really exciting i think we are on the cusp of telling much more interesting stories about finance much more accessible uh, stories about uh, finance uh, i think you know i were talking before the podcast started about uh, my position at the museum of american finance i lead the communications board there so i'm sort of chief storyteller at the museum you know and 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 we are, we are big Hamiltonians at the museum. Actually, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda did some of his research with uh, at the museum. Um, if you watch the PBS documentary about the making of it, you'll see some of it is filmed at the museum. We have the we have the you know the, the dueling pistols. We have Hamilton's report on public credit. We have a big statue of Hamilton. So, you know, we, we are um, we love that story, the founding story of of finance. Um, uh, and right there, you know, right there at the, at the origination of the American financial system, you have everything that you need to know about where we are today, about debt and about personal responsibility and about credit and about, you know, and about this incredible, powerful mechanism that the finance can be. You know, uh, Dick's, Professor Dick Silla, who was just stepped down as chair of the museum, will tell you that, that money or finance is a, is a machine for moving money or value back and forwards in time. When I take a mortgage, mm -hmm. you know, I'm borrowing money from my future self and I'm bringing it forward to me now to be able to afford the house that I live in. When I, you know, when I save for retirement, when I get a 401k, I'm, I'm sending money into the future, into my future self to be able to afford them a, a, a right. comfortable retirement. So, you know, you, finance is a mechanism for moving money and value forwards and backwards in time. That story alone is a, is a funny, fascinating, interesting metaphor that really gets you thinking. And what I love about the museum is we work with school kids. We sort of teach them, you know, the, the, uh, the, 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 the head of the museum, a guy called Dr. David Cowan, says, if we can just get them to learn compounding interest, you know, <laughs> we've won. If we can just get them that far. You know, when asked, I don't know if you know this, but when asked, he was asked what the most powerful force in the universe was once, and Einstein said compound interest. So know. there's fun, there's fun stories to be told about finance and money. Um, it touches on so many things. I think it's, you know, what, what we would, the museum would say, and also at Vested, what we would say is the three P's of finance, public finance, how governments and municipalities raise and manage money, private finance, which is how the capital markets operate, how ideas come to life, things like vaccines, how they get funded, 
uh, and then personal finance. And that's the, 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 the money in people's wallets and, and the very real challenges that we've got today. 50% of Americans don't have $500 in emergency savings. And that was before the pandemic. You know, one in four kids is going to bed hungry. You know, we have to do something to address the financial literacy crisis, the financial uh, uh, personal finance crisis that we have in this and, and other countries. Invested, we just launched a state of financial literacy report. So you can find that on our website, okay. fullyvested.com. We just launched an ABCs of finance book. It's a kid's ABCs book with each letter corresponding to a funny financial term. Uh, and, it, and accompanying that is a, is a state of financial literacy post-pandemic uh, report that we've put together on the website. Um, and, and I think, you know, we enjoy telling stories about finance and I, we're passionate about it. Uh, we're geeky about it. We're nerdy about it. And, um, I think our passion inspires our clients to tell more compelling stories and, and, and that in turn inspires their customers and their clients. Yeah. Um, and when you get to, I mean, banking and finance, it also has a bad rap. It's got a breakthrough, um, big finance, traditional finance, right? I mean, it's it, it's it's how you I imagine part of the challenge is 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 telling the story to whet people's appetite to get them involved to get them enthused and to get them to participate and yet breaking down sort of this this reputation of of the banking industry. I'm sure I don't know what you mean there. I know no, you never heard of this, right? I'm not sure what you mean. I think it's fascinating, right? So. I mean, to this point about bringing people into the industry, right? Oliver Stone writes Wall Street in, in 1984. And he actually says, famously, he thought that um, the character of Gordon Gecko, you know, represented everything that he, he thought was wrong about the, the greed and avarice in America. And the um, and he, he genuinely thought that, that it was going to be the, the nail in the coffin of the, of the American financial industry. You know? and then, <laughs> Surprise! And then, Surprise! And the next year investment banks had the highest number of applications for people who everyone wanted to be Gordon Gecko. Right? Yep, yep. Um, and, and I think, you know, that tells you, uh, that tells you, I think there are parts of the financial industry, sort of like the, 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 the baller quality of the financial industry, if you like, the Wall Street, that's always going to be kind of appealing in a way to a certain, America is a, a voraciously capitalist country, and so right. you know there is there's some ten, there's some tension there. But you know we would be remiss, I think, not to to just sort of write write that off for everyone who's like, well, then with Wall Street, there's some kid graduating Stanford right now or MIT or Harvard or something that's just dreaming of becoming a an investment right. banker and working, you know, eighty hours a week or whatever it is, something like crazy it. to. Uh, not me, not me. I'm I'm much happier just I'm much happier being a nine to five guy. But I do agree. I think you know, finance has. I, I would argue that actually finance ha is 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 enjoying what I would what I've been terming the utility bonus over the last twelve months. I think banks, mostly are kind of utilities, particularly over the last uh, 12 years, as I talk about in the book, you know, after the financial crisis, many of the banks, part of the reason they missed this FinTech window and it was, it was to the technologists to go and build it. Part of the reason was they were like, we're done with innovating. We're out. We built, you know, lots of, we innovated a lot. We built lots of funky constructions. We extended credit to the lower end of the market. We're out. We're out. We're going to stick to our knitting. And that's kind of what they've been doing for the last 10 years, right? Moving money around. 
And so two things about this last crisis. One, finance didn't create it, which is the first time in probably 30 years that we've had a crisis and an economic crisis in this country that wasn't, that didn't originate on Wall Street. So we'd be dancing happily because it wasn't us for once. It was just COVID. It was just COVID, right? So SNL crisis, dot com in many ways was, although it was sort of seen as a West Coast technology, it really is a market, you know, problem 2008. And now this, uh, we didn't, we didn't talk, this one was not on us, guys. So we've been enjoying some sort of time out of the spotlight for that. And I think also this utility bonus People need, people actually gravitate towards things in crisis. They gravitate towards things that just work. And so I was saying, you know, think about that a year ago, April, we're all sort of sitting in our bunkers. You know, if you've got an email from your water company at any other time to say, hey, it's just the water company letting you know the water's running today. You'd just be like, what the hell is this message for? If you got it in April, 2020, you'd be like, Hallelujah, the water is working today. <laughs> and I think the same is true for electricity. And I think to a certain extent, the same is true for banking and finance, right? ATMs kept spinning our money. Uh, your, uh, your credit cards worked. Uh, the system held up very, very well, actually. And I think sort of subconscious, and even that PPP that I was talking about, which definitely had some screw-ups and definitely was um, unequal in its distribution, it still managed to, they were the conduits, they were the fire hose for distributing stimulus checks and um, uh, and this PPP capital. And so I think actually the last 12, 18 months, um, finance has actually burnished its reputation, weirdly. Um, uh, and I think that sort of regulatory and reputational spotlight has fallen much more on sort of technology there's been this tech clash, right? So like you know, Facebook and these other, you know, social networks, antitrust, monopoly focus and attention. It's been their time on the hot seat more than, you know, more than finance. But give it a minute. Uh, give it a minute. We'll come up with something. You know, there was the Archegos affair last week, um, which kind of showed a kind of a somewhat seedy side Um of, of finance, uh, you know, there's this Robin Hood stuff that's kind of bubbling along. Um, right. There will be, you know, we'll we'll have some self-inflicted wounds. We always do. We're the financial industry, about, after all. Well, plenty to talk about. Well, I um, would love to have this conversation again in six months or a year and see where we're at and see what's new and uh, groovy out there and uh, keep track of it because I love your uh, love your enthusiasm on the subject and so much that's out there that I didn't know about. So I appreciate you talking. Sure. And, you know, next time we can talk more about, you know, comms and, and media relations, which is actually what I do for a little <laughs> Do that all the time. All right. Thank you. Well, thanks, Diana. You have been listening to the Provoke podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialists, marketeers. Support for this podcast comes from Notified, the integrated, intelligent, and easy-to-use PR software. Get a free demo today at notified.com.